turn to uh, 1 Corinthians on your device or in your Bibles. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Um, I do have a word for us today. I love um, singing. I love prophesying. I love worshiping hard. But we love the Word of God. Amen? We love the Word of God. And we're so grateful for His Word given to us. We told our new partners who came in you know, to the Gospel Tab family that um, we are Bible people, you know, and we honor the Word of God in our midst. Um, so we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. We said last week that Paul's making this argument to the church that he planted in Corinth as he's responding to some of the divisions and disagreements there. He is making this argument that you cannot take something as radical, as scandalous, as ugly, as love-filled as the cross of Jesus Christ and repackage it into something that is slick and nice-looking and, uh, you know, is valuable and beautiful according to the, what the world calls valuable and beautiful. He's saying God has radically redefined what's beautiful at the cross of his own son, Jesus. And so he's continuing that argument, still really addressing the divisions in the church. But to do that, he's going to get deeper into how the cross of God worked in God's plan of salvation. So I'm going to begin reading in 1 Corinthians 18. And then I want to tell you, um, you know, I was reflecting on this passage yesterday and walking around the sanctuary like I often do, praying after I'd finished my study of uh, this passage in scripture, and I just really felt like I didn't have the message, and that doesn't happen to me very often, but I just felt like I know what this passage means, I've studied it, but I just don't feel like I have what the Spirit is saying to the church, and, uh, and then this morning, I, w- I woke up early, and it just came to me, I just felt like the Lord told me um, to just uh, share some of my own story as it relates to this passage, so I'm going to do my best diligence to explain what this passage means. Um, but then I'm going to share with you what this has meant for me, all right? So 1 Corinthians 1.18. Paul says this, For the message of the cross, actually, before I go in further, just to do justice to the word of God, because I'm going to break this down for you, can we read the whole passage in its entirety first so you can just hear the flow of it in its entirety, and then we'll circle back and break it down, okay? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Amazing passage of scripture. Can we just give God thanks for his work? Thank you, Lord. Paul here is talking about the foolishness of God. Of course, the foolishness of God is actually wisdom. What's foolish is human wisdom. But God's wisdom is so otherworldly. It's so different. It is so different than what we know and experience and what the world values that as it broke in on our experience in the cross of Jesus, what looks wise to God actually looks foolish to people and to human societies. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about what the wisdom of God looks like. Paul's going to break that down for us in 1 Corinthians 2. But today, the language that he's using is talking about God's foolishness. He's saying the way that God works is so extraordinary, so different than what people are used to, that it actually looks foolish to people who think that they're wise. So first of all, he says that the foolishness of God is the cross of Jesus Christ, is Christ crucified. Christ, when we say Jesus Christ, that's not his last name, right? It's his title. In the Hebrew language, it's Messiah, right? Meaning the chosen one, the one that God chose to save his people from their sins, the one God chose to bring his kingdom and his rule on earth, the one whom God sent to take on human flesh to bear the penalty for our sin. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that had been prophesied for hundreds of years before his coming. Now, after 2,000 years of seeing the cross as a religious symbol, it's very hard for us to understand the radicalness of the cross, of saying Christ crucified. In the people's minds who heard this, those two words do not go together. This isn't a perfect analogy, but it's kind of like saying fried ice. You can't put those two words together, right? Fried ice, what is that even? That doesn't even make any sense. That's how it would have hit the ears of the people who first heard Christ crucified. And Paul quotes a prophecy out of Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate it. If you look back in that passage in Isaiah, God is executing his judgment against human pride and what they think is wisdom, the way they think that the world works. And he's saying God's wisdom is so out of this world, so different, that it pronounces judgment on what people call wise. Christ crucified, fried ice. These two things don't seem like they should fit together. Paul says that it's a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks. Let's think about that for a second. Why is this a stumbling block to Jews? The Jewish people were full of hope and anticipation for a Messiah. Their prophets had prophesied it. Their teachers had taught it. Their rabbis had explained the Old Testament scriptures. They were ready to receive the Messiah. It's the crucified part that they would have gotten hung up on. 
This person, this Messiah that was coming, was supposed to overthrow the Roman Empire, was supposed to be a political warrior, was supposed to free their people from earthly oppression, not be crucified by the empire that they were hoping to be freed from. It's a stumbling block. Christ crucified. The stumbling block for religious people was thinking that God could only work in certain ways. To accept the notion of a Messiah, but to dictate the terms on which that Messiah would come. To say, no, we know how God works. We understand how he moves. We're expecting the Messiah, and we think we know what this is going to look like. Religious people still do this today. We think we know how God is going to work, right? And just a little trick if you're religious. I don't know if that's the right word, trick. Hack, life hack. A life hack if you're religious. If it looks foolish to you, it might be God. Not necessarily, but it just might be. There's a, there's a skill we can learn to not dismiss what looks foolish just because it looks foolish to us religious people. But to say God might be in this. There's parts of today's service that might have looked foolish to you. I understand that. It might have looked silly to you. I understand that. But what if God is in it? What if Christ crucified is how he's going to save the world? The Jews couldn't see it. Stumbling block. For the Greeks, if you understand, I said this last week, that Corinth is this place of philosophical enterprise, of intellectual pursuit, of debate. They were always looking forward to the next wise person, the next philosopher coming into town and gathering a crowd and sharing a new novel idea. Paul shows up in Corinth with this message of a poor man from a despised race being crucified as a criminal by an oppressive empire. That is not an impressive message to promote in this city. That's not an impressive message that would have got... The philosophers who heard that would have thought, what kind of thing is this? What kind of message is this? As a matter of fact, they would have despised it. Um, There's a a pagan thinker, a philosopher named Celsus. Uh, He, among others, wrote about the early Christians. And one thing that Celsus wrote was that this new movement, this religion, this teaching about Jesus was only appealing to poor people, slaves, women, children, those on the edges, marginalized, oppressed by the empire. He said it sneeringly, but this is actually the wisdom of God. Which brings us to our second point. The foolishness of God is Christ crucified as fried ice. But the foolishness of God is also his own family. Next slide. We are his foolishness. Fried ice. To think that we are the holy ones of God. Have you ever heard of anything so crazy in your life? To think that we are the chosen ones. To think that God reached down and found us. Made us the ones who inherit his kingdom. To make us the recipients of all of his blessings. To call us his own holy things. Paul's saying part of the foolishness of God is that when you look at his family, it looks foolish, but this is God's design. Paul says, not many of you were noble. Not many of you were influential. Now, there were noble and influential Christians, and we know that. Yes, even in Corinth, we know that there were some notable people who became believers, but here's what Paul is saying. Whatever's on your resume is of no advantage to you when it comes to being part of the family of God. And whatever you don't have on your resume is no disadvantage. Because God just picked us. God just reached down and chose us. And the more foolish we looked, the more silly we looked, the more it gave him the glory that God would pick people like us to be his family. 
We are the foolishness of God. That's good news because if you have stuff on your resume, if you're educated and influential, and it means that God sees past all of that to your real identity. He sees you for what you actually are. He sees past those achievements and loves you even apart from them. And that allows him to use those things in your life for his glory. But it also means that if you don't have much on your resume, oh, you belong in the family of God. God delights in the foolishness of his family. God delights that he has drawn us to bring testimony to his own glory. Not many of you, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise, noble, influential. But God picked you. We are his foolishness. And here's the last bit of God's foolishness in this passage. The foolishness of God is our own ministries. I mean, it's one thing to be picked. It's another thing that God would use us. How crazy is this? Now, I want you to notice the irony here. Last week, I said that Paul sometimes intentionally fell back, held back on his gifting to make sure that his gifting did not eclipse the true message of the cross. You can't overpackage the cross. The cross stands on its own as the clearest expression of God's love for humanity. So we can't even inadvertently step in front of that and package it in a way that it empties the cross of its power. But I want you to notice the irony here. We just read what is probably one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, right? Paul, as it turns out, is quite eloquent. Paul, as it turns out, is a beautiful writer, And he is going to admit later on that he's not the best preacher, but I have a feeling he was a decent preacher to be able to write like that. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon as beautiful as that, right, as what we just read. So why why does this tension exist? Well, here's why. Paul doesn't have a problem with us using the gifts that God has given us. He's just saying we cannot hang the success of the mission on those things. He's saying if your salvation rested on my eloquence, then that's no foundation for your salvation. Salvation needs to rest on God's power. And Paul was so serious about making sure that the foundation was set on the right thing. So the foolishness is Christ crucified, fried ice. That's weird, but it's what God did. The foolishness of God is his family, fried ice, Joel, Christian. Joel, son of God, it's fried ice, but it's the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God is our ministries, that God would use preaching. What is this I'm doing anyway? What is, how does God use this? How does that even make sense? How could I ever be eloquent enough? How could I ever say the right thing? How could us spending time with each other and loving each other and serving each other and serving our community and being advocates for the poor and all this stuff, how could that ever make a difference? It's the foolishness of God. It's fried ice. He loves to bring this stuff together. Angelica loves that phrase, fried ice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking my coat off. I don't know what's happening here. All right. Okay, let me share with you how this has played out in my own life, and then I'm going to leave you with this, all right? The foolishness of God. Christ crucified, his family, our ministries. This is all the foolishness of God. Fifteen years ago, I was involved, as many of you probably know, in starting a youth development organization in Aliquippa called Aliquippa Impact. It's grown. Brandy Pupi sitting right here is the executive director now. I've served hundreds of kids. Some of you are on staff at that organization, or you give to it, or pray for it, you know about it. 
It was one of the first of a family of organizations that, and entities and ministries and mission that has sprung up around our Gospel Tab family. Um, I started while I was still in college. I was finishing my first degree, about to go into my master's degree. And uh, my first master's degree was in urban studies and youth development. And so while Aliquip Impact was starting, I'm learning all of this theory, this sociology, this stuff that's really valuable about how to engage and advocate for the poor and how to build a youth development organization that could serve kids. It was 15 years ago. We started in Limar Terrace. But here's how this passage started to break in on me. I show up in Linmar Terrace with what? My education, my ideas about what this should look like, um, theory from research-based organizations about how to help kids. Like Paul's eloquence, God will use all of that stuff. He doesn't waste any of it. He will use all that stuff, but even that stuff, we cannot hang the success of the mission on. It's not enough. Our community, listen, our community deserves more than what our education can bring it. You understand? Our community deserves more than what our experience or ideas can bring it. God wants to do something, right? Um, in the first couple years, um, I remember one day sitting in the Limar Community Center, and kids were coming to the program, and we had good mentors, and I felt like we got off on a good foot. It was thoughtful. I think we were trying to you know, help students. Um, and I just realized, though, that something was wrong, that as long as this was about kids coming into the space that I created and following my rules and following my ideas, I just realized that here's what hadn't happened, especially as a white person coming into a community of color. Here's what I realized was that uh, the power hadn't changed. I hadn't given up any power. I hadn't given up any power to do that kind of ministry. And what we're reminded of in 1 Corinthians is that it is precisely when we choose to give up power that God does his best work. It's precisely when we step into the vulnerable place that God does his best work. So what this looked like for me, I wrote it in my journal one day. I said, tonight we go to the streets because here's the truth. Out on the streets back then 15 years ago as much as today, my education doesn't really matter. Um, my ideas don't really matter. There were so many things I didn't understand. Sometimes it was straight up embarrassing, you know? Like, people would say stuff to me. I'd be like, I have no idea what you just said. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not cool. You know what I mean? So, so like, so I just didn't, I just didn't, I'm not that cool. So I just didn't, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. And, and every time I went out, I feel like I don't have the words to say. I feel like I don't know what I'm accomplishing. I feel like I don't know... It put me into a position of having to be a learner, right? Um, to give up power as much as possible, you know, and just to walk around and not come in with an agenda, but just to say, I need. I, I, I want to tell you, I went to Bible college. That is not how I was taught to do ministry. I was taught to have the answers. I was taught to study and make sure you have the answers before you do the thing. I was taught to try to present things that look packaged and put together and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't taught just to make myself weak, just to make myself vulnerable. But what would happen if we learned to do ministry from weak and vulnerable places? What, what would happen if we were willing to step into those spaces? Now, here's where it gets really personal. Um, over the years, God has done something 
that I couldn't have believed from being out on the street. And although my role has changed at Eloquip Impact, it's still very much a part of who I am on a week-to-week basis. I still spend time out there, all the time in the community. And here's one thing that's happened over these years. God has um, used me especially, I think, and burdened me especially to reach young men who are out there on the streets, like in the game. Um, If you would look at my phone on any given week, you'd see it blowing up. This guy's my witness, blowing up with guys who are either coming out of that or who are still out there, you know? And they text me these, like, it's so funny. They text me these, like, affectionate messages, you know, like, I love you and there's a heart, you know what I mean? Like, and you would never, but here's what's happened. God has given me grace to enter into the humanity of people because all we've ever seen is normal people going through crazy stuff. Like I've said all the time, if Jesus and his power isn't for that street corner, then I'm not sure we believe in anything. We can make it sound like something here, but if it doesn't mean something out there, then we don't believe in anything. But his power is for out there. His power is for the places you know, that have been forgotten and you know, left out where people feel like it's hopeless. So, so I spend time out there, and I've been able to lead people to Christ and see people get baptized. And, and honestly, if I can just be completely like, confessional with you, I see more power in my ministry out there than I do in here, typically. Um, you know what started to happen recently? It's so odd. I'll meet with guys. I, I've been hanging out with some guys who are even like, um, you know, experimenting with different religious systems, all this stuff, aren't sure what they believe about Jesus. In the middle of my conversation with them, they'll break down crying. I told, the last time this happened was just a couple weeks ago. I said, can I just make a suggestion? I think this is my God, like showing you his love, which is why you're crying like this in the middle of this restaurant. This is not a dude who cries, you know, like normally. Um, but there he is, like shedding his tears. Now here's, here's what I'm getting to. You have to understand it's very personal. To understand how truly odd this is, if it's not apparent to you already, I don't have to tell you, right, that when I go out on the street and I'm on the corner or whatever, um, I don't look like I belong, right? <laughs> See this sweater I'm wearing today. You know what I mean? She's like, I don't have to tell you, right, that I don't look like I belong. So it's odd enough, but let me tell you how strange it is. Let me tell you how odd it is. To understand this, you need to understand Joel Repick as a little boy. I was, like, full of energy, Always really social. I made friends everywhere, you know, and made friends easily. That was never hard for me as a kid. But I also had a part of me that was sensitive. Um, It was easy for me to cry. Um, Easy for me to get my feelings hurt in school all the way growing up. Um, Easy for me to cry. Um, One thing I never had in my personality, and I still really don't, is a kind of, like, um, like, aggression or, like, being aggressive, you know, like some boys have. Um, I was, I was uh, punching the punching bag at Premier the other day, and Ty walked up to me and said, stop kissing the bag. Stop. <laughs> That's so me, though. It's so my personality. Uh, it's like, stop doing that. <laughs> Hit the bag, you know what I mean? Uh, and so, but some of that's just my personality. I just, whatever that was, I never had. I loved sports growing up, and I played all the way through. But honestly, the social part of it was the most exciting part of it for me. It was like to be part of the team. My coaches were always yelling at me to be more aggressive. It's just like I didn't have it. Well, when I was young, my parents um, were part of a church plant that had split off from another church. It was small. There weren't many kids in the church. And this was before we came back here. 
And I really, I went to a small Christian school. This church didn't have very many kids. There was one boy that I was friends with, and our parents were both leading in the church. So I was friends with him, you know, all the time. Um, And always at his house and stuff. And for the most part, like, those were good memories. But he had some of those things I didn't have. He was not sensitive. He was aggressive. Better than me at sports, faster, stronger, all that kind of stuff. Later on, um, my mom told me when we moved here to Pennsylvania that she was so glad that God helped us move away because uh, we were constantly being compared in the church. And I remember this as a kid. People would make comments, you know, about what he had that I didn't have, you know, in terms of aggression or like whatever that was. And I don't have to tell you if I can just talk to the men in the room for a second. I don't have to tell you that now we are deep in the psychology of what our society says masculinity should and should not be, right? Um, and this stuff affects us, you know, as kids. This whole thing about weakness and strength, it's a big deal probably for every man in this room. It's a big deal trying to size yourself up and size yourself up, you know, against other people and decide who's stronger and what looks like weakness and what looks like strength and all that. Remember that being so pressuring. One time we were playing soccer. I played soccer all the way up through high school. We were playing soccer and... Uh, he would always make fun of me in front of other people. Like, I just wasn't like that. You know what I mean? I just wanted to have fun. He would always make fun of me in front of other people. So one-on-one, we were fine, but then he'd start making fun. This one day, he did it on the soccer field. I was so angry. He was definitely a better soccer player than me. Um, but I was definitely angry at him, and he started running away, dribbling the ball, and I clipped him in the back of his knees, you know, came up behind him. Oh, I felt so good. <laughs> <laughs> It felt so good. <laughs> but I knew, I knew. I was like, this is not going to be good. I could see it in the future. He was stronger than me, developed faster than me. So the next thing I remember is him on top of me and just boom, 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 you know, in front of everyone. But it felt so good to take him down there. <laughs> just for a second. I knew I'd lose the fight after that. But, but it felt, you know, but it felt so good to do that. And then... In the midst of all those dynamics, and I know this just sounds like, like child stuff, but this stuff like shapes us and forms us. In the midst of all of those dynamics, as we started to go into middle school, the dominance that he expressed in our um, relationship, the way that he could be bullying, you know, the way that he controlled me, all of that expressed itself sexually. And he was aggressive that way to me too. That was my first sexual experience. Um, and you know what? I held that inside for so long. I didn't talk about that to anybody until I was much older, you know, because it was part of the humiliation. You know, it was part of his control over me, you know, his dominance of me, you know? I just felt like I couldn't let the world see that, you know what I mean? Because that was going to hurt, you know, like if people saw that. Um, you know, as I got older, um, Whatever that is that people noticed about my non-aggression continued to, like, manifest. I was um, talking to a ministry leader one time, no joke, talking to a ministry leader one time, and he was aware that I was out on the streets, like, hanging out with some of the guys that I hang out with. And I can just tell, because this has happened since I was young, he's sizing me up, you know, and this guy has, like, a mixed martial arts background, like, all this stuff. He's sizing me up, and he goes, um, he goes, so wait, you're out there with those guys? And I knew what he meant. You know, he's like, you're out there with those guys. And then at one point he said to me, he said, hey, there's a gym nearby. You think you could take me? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I don't. Like, I just was like, 
It's like, why does this follow me? Like, why do, do I find myself like in, you know, these awkward, terrible conversations? But here's why I'm telling you all of this. You ready for it? I think I've had more effectiveness out on the streets than anywhere else. I think more than the church because this is actually the environment that I know how to navigate the most. You know? I know how to look put together here. I was about to say, I have trouble looking foolish. As, as much as I've grown, I have trouble looking foolish here. I, but I don't know what happened today. <laughs> what was that? So maybe I'm okay now. <laughs> I might be fine. Okay, I'm doing all right. Uh, and so, so you know, I've, I, I, it's easier for me to look foolish out there for whatever reason, because I can't help it. That's why. Because I can't help it. I just look silly out there. And year after year, I've walked up to guys I don't even know who are on the corner. You know, sometimes I know they're carrying a gun or whatever. And, um, and they, they start, like, talking to me. And here's what I've learned about weakness and strength and the foolishness of God. You ready for this? It is my weakness that God has used for that. You know why? It's because I'm not intimidating. No one out there thinks I'm intimidating. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I know. (laughs) You guys are scared right now. (laughs) Listen. I know I'm not intimidating, but that thing that used to be a source of shame in my life, that thing that made me wonder if I measured up, if I was strong enough, fast enough, like good enough, like whatever, that it felt like I could never compare it to my peers, like, you know, all that stuff. Somehow that is actually the thing that God uses when I'm out there. It is actually that that has given me so much access. It's actually that that has formed these relationships. It's a, and I can tell you, friends, Something has happened. I, I'm still very aware of that dynamic. There was a time I wanted God to like change that or something. I, I don't know. Like you know, it, it, I am who I am. But here's like what I do know: is God uses who I am, and I can like stand in His love. The foolishness of God is Joel Repic. The foolishness of God is you. The foolishness of God is the weakness that He uses to reach people. It's the all the stuff we try to hide and we try to project and we try to look different than what we are, that's actually the stuff that God wants access to, to use. He wanted access to a cross to save the world. He wanted access to a crucifixion scene to save the world. It's our weakness that he delights in using because then he gets glory. If I'm going to boast, may I boast in the Lord. May I boast in the Lord. There's nothing to boast about here. And I boast in the Lord because that's what he uses. Amen.